Section three of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume five, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine Parr, Chapter one, Part three. One of the first fruits of Queen Catherine's virtuous influence over the mind of the king was the restoration of his daughters, the persecuted Mary and the young neglected Elizabeth to their proper rank in the court and recognition in the order of succession to the crown the privy purse expenses of the princess mary bear evidence of many little traits of kindness and friendly attentions which she had from time to time received from her amiable stepmother when mary was taken ill on her journey between grafton and woodstock the queen sent her own litter to convey her to Amphill, where she was herself residing with the king on the new year's day after her marriage queen catherine sent her footman jacob with the present of a cheese for the princess mary who girdened the bearer with seven and sixpence a rich nightgown or evening dress is on another occasion sent by queen catherine to mary by fritton the keeper of the royal robes mary's reward to fritton was fifteen shillings mary embroidered a cushion with her own hands as an offering for the queen and paid seven and sixpence to john haynes for devising the pattern catherine on her marriage received into her household one mrs barbara undoubtedly at the request of the princess mary who had kindly supplied this person with money clothes food and medical attendance during a long illness an item occurs at the time of catherine parr's marriage in the accounts of the princess of money presented to mrs barbara when she was sworn queen's woman and being thus honorably provided for her name no longer occurs in the list of mary's pensioners notwithstanding the great difference in their religious tenets a firm friendship ever subsisted between catherine parr and mary they were near enough in age to have been sisters they excelled in the same accomplishments and the great learning and studious pursuits of these royal ladies rendered them suitable companions for each other the more brilliant talents of the young elizabeth were drawn forth and fostered under the auspices of her highly gifted stepmother catherine parr took also an active part in directing the studies of the heir of england and her approbation appears to have been the greatest encouragement the prince could receive in a letter written in french to queen catherine edward notices the beauty of her penmanship i thank you says he most noble and excellent queen for the letters you have lately sent me not only for their beauty but for their imagination for when i see your belle scripture or fair writing and the excellence of your genius greatly surpassing my invention i am sick of writing but then i think how kind your nature is and that whatever proceeds from a good mind and intention will be acceptable and so i write you this letter a modern author has noticed the great similarity between the handwriting of edward the sixth and catherine parr and from this circumstance it has been conjectured that catherine superintended the education of one or other of the juvenile members of the royal family previous to her marriage with king henry no official evidence of her appointment to any office of the kind has been discovered but her great reputation for wisdom and learning renders the tradition not improbable certain it is that after she became queen she took great delight in directing the studies of her royal stepchildren 
it is evident that Edward the Sixth, Queen Elizabeth, and their youthful cousins, Lady Jane and Lady Catherine Grey, all imbibed her taste for classic literature, and her attachment to the principles of the Reformation. She induced not only Elizabeth, but Mary, to translate passages from the scriptures. Each of these princesses compiled a little manual of devotions, in Latin, French, and English, dedicated to their accomplished stepmother. Catherine Parr's celebrity as a scholar and a theologian did not render her neglectful of the feminine accomplishment of needlework, in which, notwithstanding her early resistance to its practice, she much delighted. Like Henry's first excellent queen, Catherine of Aragon, she employed her hours of retirement in embroidering among her ladies. It is said that a portion of the hangings which adorned the royal apartments of the tower, before they were dismantled or destroyed, were the work of this queen, the only specimens, however, that are now to be found of her skill and industry in this pleasing art, are those preserved at Sizer Castle. Her taste in dress appears to have been excellent, uniting magnificence of material with a simplicity of form. In fact, the costume of Catherine Parr, as shown in her miniature, might be worn with perfect propriety in any courtly circle of the present age. Catherine Parr enacted the queen with as much royal state and splendor as the loftiest of her predecessors. She granted an interview to the Spanish Duke de Najara at Westminster Palace, February 17, 1544. This Spanish grandee visited England on his return from the army of Charles V and was admitted to pay his respects to the queen and her daughter-in-law, the Princess Mary. The queen permitted him to kiss her hand. Pedro de Gante, secretary to the grandee, has described her dress with the zeal of a man milliner. She wore a kirtle of brocade and an open robe of cloth of gold, the sleeves lined with crimson satin and trimmed with three-piled crimson velvet, the train more than two yards long. Suspended from the neck were two crosses and a jewel with very rich diamonds, and on her headdress were many rich and beautiful ones. Her girdle was of gold, with very large pendants. The original miniature of this queen, which has recently attracted much interest, during the sale of Horace Walpole's collection at Strawberry Hill, represents her with very small and delicately marked features, hazel eyes and golden hair, folded in simple Madonna bands. Her forehead is lofty and serene, indicative of talent and sprightly wit. She wears a round crimson velvet hood, or cap of state, edged with pearls, and surmounted with a jeweled band of goldsmith's work, set with rubies and pearls, which confines a long black veil, that flows from the back of the headdress over the shoulders. The bodice and sleeves of the dress are made of rich gold brocade, and set tight to the shape. The bodice is cut square across the bust, like the corsage of a modern dress, and is edged with a row of pearls, between pipes of black and crimson velvet. She wears a double row of large pearls about her neck, from which depends a ruby cross, finished with one fair pendant pearl. Her bodice is ornamented with a large ruby brooch, set in filigree gold. The miniature is a small oval, on a deep, small blue background. Her age is stated, in gilt figures in front of the picture, to be thirty-two, so that the likeness must have been taken in the year 1545, about two years after her marriage with Henry the Eighth. 
perhaps this was the veritable miniature which the admiral sir thomas seymour obtained from catherine when he subsequently entreated her to send him one of her little pictures if she had not given them all away a proof that several original miniatures of this queen were painted although they are now almost as rare and difficult to identify as those of catherine howard the engraving usually stated to be from an original painting of catherine parr possesses none of her characteristics it is a shrewd sordid-looking female of rather large proportions with dark complexion and hair catherine parr was petite in form with remarkably small and delicately cut features and her complexion was that of a genuine westmoreland beauty brilliantly fair and blooming with hazel eyes and hair of a golden auburn realizing the beau ideal of petrarca when he exclaims love from what precious mind of gold didst thou bring the rich glories of her shining hair where pluck the open roses fresh and fair which on her cheeks in tender blushes glow catherine parr's celebrated work the lamentations of a sinner was written after her marriage with the king this little volume next to the writings of sir thomas more affords one of the finest specimens of english composition of that era it is a brief but eloquent treatise on the imperfection of human nature in its unassisted state and the utter vanity of all earthly grandeur and distinction within the limited compass of about one hundred twenty miniature pages it comprises the elements of almost all the sermons that have been levelled against papal supremacy the royal writer does not forget to compliment king henry for having emancipated england from this domination thanks be given to the lord that he hath now sent us such a godly and learned king in these latter days to reign over us that with the force of god's word hath taken away the veils and mists of errors and brought us to the knowledge of the truth by the light of god's word which was so long hid and kept under that the people were well nigh famished and hungered for lack of spiritual food such was the charity of the spiritual curates and shepherds but our moses and most godly wise governor and king that hath delivered us out of the captivity and spiritual bondage of pharaoh i mean by this moses king henry the eighth my most sovereign and favourable lord and husband one if moses had figured any more than christ through the excellent grace of god me to be another express verity of moses's conquest over pharaoh and i mean by this pharaoh the bishop of rome who hath been and is a greater persecutor of all true christians than ever was pharaoh of the children of israel the gross flattery offered up to her husband in this passage is somewhat atoned for by the pure morality which generally pervades the precepts of this little treatise the zeal with which it is written is extremely ardent her aspiration for martyrdom frequent the tenets inculcated are simply that all good works arise from the inspiration of the spirit of god vouchsafed through belief in christ derived from prayer and diligent perusal of the scriptures she is nearly as severe on those who call themselves gospelers and separate faith and works as she is on the pope and she evidently considers them in equal or greater error here are her words and it must be owned that if she considered her two last lords henry the eighth and thomas seymour exceptions from her description conjugal partiality must have strangely blinded her now i will speak with great dolor and heaviness of heart 
of a sort of person which be in the world that be called professors of the gospel and by their words do declare and show that they be much affected to the same but i am afraid some of them do build on the sand as simon magus did making a weak foundation i mean they make not christ their chiefest foundation but either they would be called gospelers and procure some credit and good opinion of the true and very favourers of christ's doctrines either to find out some carnal liberty either to be contentious disputers finders or rebukers of other men's faults or else finally to please and flatter the world such gospelers be an offence and slander to the word of god and make the wicked to rejoice and laugh saying behold i pray you their fair fruits what charity what discretion what goodness holiness and purity of life is amongst them be they not great avengers foul gluttons backbiters adulterers swearers and blasphemers yea do they not wallow and tumble in all manner of sins these be the fruits of their doctrine and yet the word of god is all holy sincere and godly being the doctrine and occasion of all pure living she then with great earnestness applies the parable of the sower and his seed and that of the barren fig tree her precepts to her own sex are as follows if they be women married they learn of st paul to be obedient to their husbands and to keep silence in the congregation and to learn of their husbands at home also that they wear such apparel as becometh holiness and comely usage with soberness not being accusers or detractors not given to much eating of delicate meats and drinking of wine but that they teach honest things to make the young women sober-minded to love their husbands to love their children to be discreet housewifely and good that the word of god may not be evil spoken of catherine evidently approved of clerical celibacy the passage in her work from which this inference is drawn is curious because it shows that she still professed the church established by her husband which insisted on this point of discipline the true followers of christ's doctrine hath always a respect and an eye to their vocation if they be called to the ministry of god's word they preach and teach it sincerely to the edifying of others and show themselves in their living followers of the same if they be married men having children and family they nourish and bring them up without all bitterness and fierceness in the doctrine of the lord in all godliness and virtue committing that is the married men the instruction of others which appertaineth not to their charge to the reformation of god and his ministers the most remarkable passage in the book is perhaps that in which catherine deplores her former attachment to the ceremonials of the church of rome some of her biographers having erroneously asserted that she was brought up in the principles of the reformation those principles were abhorrent to the king for it was the government not the essentials of the roman catholic church that he was laboring to overthrow in such low esteem indeed was henry held by the fathers of the reformation that on his rupture with the princes of the small caldic league luther publicly returned thanks to god for having delivered the protestant church from that offensive king of england the king says he on another occasion is still the same old heinz as in my first book i pictured him he will surely find his judge 
the adulation of a woman of superior intellect was necessary to henry's happiness catherine presently discovered his weak point and by condescending to adapt herself to his humor acquired considerable influence over his mind early in the year fifteen forty four king henry gave indubitable tokens of the favor with which he regarded queen catherine by causing his obedient parliament to settle the royal succession on any children he might have by her in case of the decease of prince edward without issue the wording of the first clause of this act is very curious inasmuch as henry treats four of his marriages as absolute nullities and out of his six queens only condescends to acknowledge two namely jane seymour and catherine parr forasmuch says the record as his majesty sith thence the death of the late queen jane hath taken to wife catherine late wife to sir john neville knight lord latimer deceased by whom as yet his majesty hath none issue but may full well when it shall please god etc etc in failure of heirs by his most entirely beloved wife queen catherine or any other of his lawful wife henry by the same act entails the succession on his daughter mary and in failure of her line to his daughter elizabeth but who their mothers were he does not think proper to notice lest he should by word as well as by deed contradict his previous decisions as to the unlawfulness of his marriages with catherine of aragon and anne boleyn it was however too late for henry the eighth to think of making sacrifices to consistency in his old age after having followed no other guide than passion or caprice for nearly a quarter of a century the record further explains that this act for settling the succession was made preparatory to the sovereign undertaking a voyage royal in his most royal person into the realm of france against the french king previous to his departure on this expedition king henry testified his confidence in catherine's wisdom and integrity by appointing her to govern the realm in his absence by the style and title of queen regent of england and ireland the queen observes lord herbert was constituted general regent of the realm yet not so much that her soft sex was thought less capable of ambition as that of the roman catholics of whom the king was mistrustful would take no dependence from her she being observed to incline a little to the reform the reformers certainly had the ascendancy in the council appointed by henry to assist his consort with their advice from the minutes of the council of july seventh thirty six henry the eighth we have the following entry connected with catherine parr's appointment to this important trust first touching the queen's highness and my lord prince the king's majesty hath resolved that the queen's highness shall be regent in his grace's absence and that his highness's process shall pass and bear test in her name as in like cases heretofore hath been accustomed the earl of hertford was ordered to be ever attendant on the person of catherine and resident in her court but if he could not conveniently be there then cranmer was for the time to remain with her grace and with them sir william peter and lord parr of horton were to sit in council Rodesley and the bishop of winchester were in this junto in the queen's commission of regency hertford was to be her lieutenant if she needed such assistance several of the queen consorts of england have exercised viceregal power 
either by usurpation or by the consent of the sovereign but catherine parr was the first and only one on whom the style and title of queen regent was solemnly conferred and who signed herself as such as the facsimile from her official autograph witnesses catherine queen regent k p the initials k p for catherine parr were attached to all her regal signatures prove that neither her elevation to a throne nor the distinction of the highest title of honor that had ever been borne by a female in england had rendered her unwilling to remember her simple patronymic in the true spirit of a christian queen catherine entered upon her high office by imploring the divine protection for her royal husband and his realm in the following prayer which she composed for their use o almighty king and lord of hosts which by thy angels thereunto appointed dost minister both war and peace who didst give unto david both courage and strength being but a little one unversed and inexpert in feats of war with his sling to set upon and overthrow the great huge goliath our cause now being just being enforced to enter into war and battail we most humbly beseech thee o lord god of hosts so to turn the hearts of our enemies to the desire of peace that no christian blood be spilt or else grant o lord that with small effusion of blood and little damage of innocence we may to thy glory obtain victory and that the wars being soon ended we may all with one heart and mind knit together in concord and amity laud and praise thee who livest and reignest world without end amen on the fourteenth of july fifteen forty four king henry crossed the seas from dover to calais in a ship with sails of cloth of gold on the twenty-fifth he took the field in person armed at all points mounted on a great courser and so rode out of calais with a princely train attended by sir william herbert the queen's brother-in-law bearing his headpiece and spear and followed by the henksmen bravely horsed and appointed catherine's brother the earl of essex was chief captain of the men-at-arms in this expedition on the twenty-sixth henry appeared before boulogne and took command of his puissance there the duke of albuquerque the general of the allied spanish forces encamped on the other side the town and acted in conformity to the directions of the english monarch who was the leader of the siege the following very loving and dutiful letter appears to have been written by queen catherine to the king very soon after his departure from england although the distance of time and account of days neither is long nor many of your majesty's absence yet the want of your presence so much desired and beloved by me maketh me that i cannot quietly pleasure in anything until i hear from your majesty the time therefore seemeth to me very long with a great desire to know how your highness hath done since your departing hence whose prosperity and health i prefer and desire more than mine own and whereas i know your majesty's absence is never without great need yet love and affection compel me to desire your presence again the same zeal and affection forceth me to be best content with that which is your will and pleasure thus love maketh me in all things to set apart mine own convenience and pleasure and to embrace most joyfully his will and pleasure whom i love god the knower of secrets can judge these words not to be written only with ink but most truly impressed on the heart 
much more i omit lest it be thought i go about to praise myself or crave a thank which thing to do i mind nothing less but a plain simple relation of the love and zeal i bear your majesty proceeding from the abundance of the heart wherein i must confess i desire no commendation having such just occasion to do the same i make like account with your majesty as i do with god for his benefits and gifts heaped upon me daily somewhat idolatrous this acknowledging myself a great debtor to him not being able to recompense the least of his benefits in which state i am certain and sure to die yet i hope in his gracious acceptation of my good will even such confidence have i in your majesty's gentleness knowing myself never to have done my duty as were requisite and meet for such a noble prince at whose hands i have found and received so much love and goodness that with words i cannot express it lest i should be too tedious to your majesty i finish this my scribbled letter committing you to the governance of the lord with long and prosperous life here and after this life to enjoy the kingdom of his elect from greenwich by your majesty's humble and obedient wife and servant catherine the queen k p a grateful and loyal spirit pervades this letter that the queen had both felt and expressed much anxiety for the safety of her royal husband as well as for the success of his expedition may be gathered from the following hypocritical passage in one of Rodesley's letters to her majesty god is able to strength his own against the devil and therefore let not the queen's majesty in any wise trouble herself for god shall turn all to the best and sure we be that the king's majesty's person is out of all danger a fragment of one of king henry's letters to queen catherine parr has been preserved in which he details with soldier-like plainness to his fair regent at home the auspicious progress of his campaign on the hostile shores of france the manner in which he names his family to catherine is very interesting considering their relative positions and implies much for the amiable conduct of the royal stepmother henry the eighth with all his faults wrote very pleasant letters and this is one of his best at the closing up of these our letters this day the castle before named with the dyke is at our command and not like to be recovered by the frenchmen again as we trust not doubting with god's grace but that the castle and town shall shortly follow the same trade for as this day which is the eighth of september we begin three batteries and have three more going besides one which hath done his execution in shaking and tearing off one of their greatest bulwarks no more to you at this time sweetheart but for lack of time and great occupation of business saving we pray you to give in our name our hearty blessings to all our children and recommendations to our cousin margaret and the rest of the ladies and gentlewomen and to our council also written with the hand of your loving husband henry r during the absence of the king in france queen catherine and her royal stepchildren appear to have resided together as one family in september the young edward and his sisters were under her careful guardianship at Ocking, whence in consequence of the pestilence then raging she issued her mandate to the mayor and sheriffs to make proclamation that since on account of the plague great danger might arise to her the prince and the king's other children no person in whose house the plague had been 
or who may have been with any infected person, or may have lived near any place where the infection had been, should go to court, or suffer any attendance on the court to enter his house where the infection is, under the queen's indignation and further punishment at her pleasure, from Ocking. If aught but good had befallen the dearly prized heir of England, during the absence of the king, a fearful reckoning would have awaited Queen Catherine, from her jealous and unreasonable lord, on his return. No wonder that her anxiety for the safety of this precious trust, impelled her to the use of arbitrary measures, to preserve the royal household from the danger of infection. Among the few existing documents connected with the regency of Catherine Parr, there is in the Cottonian collection an inedited letter to her council, headed, Catherine, Queen Regent, K.P., in favor of her trusty and well-beloved servant, Henry Webb, gentleman usher of her privy chamber, requesting that the king's grant of the nunnery and demesne of Holywell, which had been given to him at the surrender of the said nunnery, but only in part fulfilled, might be carried into effect, on the modified terms of allowing him to purchase that portion of the demesne which had been withheld from him. Her Majesty concludes in the following persuasive strain. We shall heartily desire and pray you to be favorable to him at this our earnest request, and in declaring whereof, your kind and loving friendship towards him effectually, at the contemplation of these our letters, we shall gratefully accept it, and also thankfully remember it, whensoever occasion shall serve us to do you pleasure. Given under our signet, at my lord the king's majesty honor of Hampton Court, the 23rd of July, and the 36th of his highness's most noble reign. Boulogne surrendered to the arms of Henry the Eighth after a fierce siege. He made his triumphant entry into the town September 18th. His council in England, by command of the Queen Regent, issued a general order, September 19th, that a public thanksgiving should be offered up to Almighty God in all the towns and villages throughout England for the taking of Boulogne. This was one of the last acts of Queen Catherine Parr's regency, for the king returned in England October 1st, finding it impossible to follow up his victorious career in France, because his Spanish allies had made a separate peace with Francis I. Catherine had governed with such prudence, during the brief period in which the sovereign power of the crown had been confided to her administration, as to leave no cause of complaint to either party. It was in all probability, after Henry's return from his victorious campaign, that the interesting family group, in Her Majesty's collection at Hampton Court, was painted by Hans Holbein. In this splendid picture, the design of which appears to have been intended to introduce all the members of the royal house of Tudor, as a united family, Henry is enthroned beneath his canopy of state, with his consort at his left hand, but instead of Catherine Parr, a pale spectral resemblance of Jane Seymour occupies the place at Henry's side. The attitude and expression of the dead queen's face and figure are as rigid and inanimate as if it had been the intention of the painter to represent her as a corpse, newly taken from the grave, clad in royal robes, and seated in jeweled pomp among the living. There is little doubt but that the delineation was made from the wax effigy, which was carried after her funeral. 
she bears a mournful and almost startling likeness to her son prince edward a beautiful boy of eight years old who leans on his father in a caressing attitude with his right hand the king embraces his son and his hand rests on his shoulder the princesses mary and elizabeth are entering on opposite sides as if to offer filial homage to the royal pair the scene appears to be on the dais of wolsey's hall with a view of one of the turrets through a side window the picture is richly emblazoned with gold and the costumes are peculiarly gorgeous and characteristic of the period henry's gown of scarlet and gold brocade is girded to his waist with a white satin sash in which the hilt of his jewelled dagger is seen the skirts of the gown are short very full and edged with gold it is slashed on the breast and five or six longitudinal rows with puffs of white satin confined with gold clasps over this he wears a magnificent collar of twisted pearls with ruby medallions a dalmatica with hanging sleeves lined with sables and edged with pearls is thrown on his shoulder his hat is of black velvet adorned with pearls and edged with the drooping white feather which is always characteristic of the costume of this monarch and also of his son henry's hose and shoes are of white satin and he wears on his breast a large medallion jewel having the appearance of a watch the prince wears a crimson velvet cap jeweled and plumed but his hair is so arranged as to have the unpicturesque effect of a brown silk skull-cap or a little bob wig he has a gold chain about his neck and is dressed in a gown of dark red damask striped with gold and arranged in heavy plates from the throat to the waist where it is confined by a narrow belt the skirt is full and descends below the knees his garment is much padded and stiffened it has hanging sleeves open to the shoulders beneath which are very full sleeves of white satin fantastically slashed with scarlet velvet his hose and shoes are of scarlet the faded statue-like representation of his dead mother appears in the pointed cloth of gold hood edged with pearls precisely like that worn by jane seymour in life but which had been superseded by the pretty low french hood introduced by katherine howard and adopted by katherine parr and her ladies the two princesses are each represented in the same picture in the round hood according to the prevailing fashion of their royal stepmother's court of crimson velvet edged with pearls similar to that worn by queen katherine parr in the strawberry hill miniature only not surmounted with so rich a coronal band of jewels this peculiarity of the costume marks the miniature of katherine to have been painted at the same period as the holbein family group if not by the same artist the hair of jane seymour and of the two princesses in this picture as well as that of katherine parr in the strawberry hill miniature are all of the golden tint which appears the universal color in all the holbein portraits of the last three years of henry the eighth's reign a singular freak of nature we should say were it not well known that an imitation of the envied chiome d'or which was produced by the use of a bright yellow powder then in vogue in some instances folds of amber-colored velvet were worn by the elder ladies of henry the eighth's court arranged like cross-bands of hair so as to give a great appearance of breadth to the forehead under the low french hood in holbein's family group the princesses mary and elizabeth are dressed precisely alike in kirtles or close-fitting gowns of rich crimson velvet with long sleeves 
finished at the hands with ruffles, and slashed with puffs of white satin from the wrists to the elbows. Over these they wear flowing robes of gold brocade, with hanging sleeves and sweeping trains. Their bodices fit tightly to the shape, and are cut rather low and square across the bust. They are edged with pearls. Both sisters wear double rows of pearls about their necks, supporting small ruby crosses. Elizabeth is a tall, full-proportioned lovely girl, of womanly appearance. Mary is much smaller, and more delicate in form and features. She has the melancholy cast of countenance, which sickness and early sorrow had rendered natural to her. In this painting, contemporary portraits of four Tudor sovereigns, Henry the Eighth, Edward the Sixth, Queen Mary, and Queen Elizabeth, with the posthumous portrait of Henry's favorite queen, Jane Seymour, are assembled together, in the splendid costume of the era, described in the fourth and fifth volumes of the Lives of the Queens of England. The circumstance of Catherine Parr permitting her deceased predecessor to take her place in the royal tableau is very remarkable. Few ladies indeed there are, who would not have regarded the proposal of being thus superseded, as a decided affront. But Catherine Parr was too generous to be jealous of a compliment offered to the dead queen, and far too prudent to oppose her royal spouse in any of his whims, however unreasonable. That Catherine Parr was in the full enjoyment of Henry's favor at this period, may be inferred from the consideration with which her kindred were treated, although she was herself cautious of giving cause of disgust to the old nobility, or envy to the climbing courtiers, by obtaining lavish grants of money and land, or a plurality of offices for her own family. Just such a meed of patronage was bestowed on her brother, her uncle, and her sister's husband, as evinced her affection, and the respect of the king for her relatives, but no more. Three of her young kinsmen, the Throckmortons, followed the banner of the sovereign in the French campaign. George was made a prisoner, and a thousand pounds was demanded by the captor for his ransom, on account of his consanguinity to her majesty. After he had remained a year in captivity, the queen exerted herself for his redemption. The scene of his return, and the preferment that followed at court, is thus pleasantly described by his nephew in the Throckmorton manuscript. When first in present chamber he was come, the king said to him, Welcome to our grace. I know thou lovest the alarm of a drum. I see the marks of manhood in thy face. He, humbly kneeling, thanked his majesty that he did see him set at liberty. And often after the king would jest, and call him cousin in his merry mood, because therefore the Frenchman had assessed his fine so high, which turned him to good, his foes did say, in serving he was free, and for reward the prince gave land in fee. Then none of us did unrewarded go, I had a gift yearly worth fifty pound, which I record because thou shouldest know, I hate received benefits to drown, besides I had a stipend for my life, who shortly left the court and took a wife. And now, because the king and queen did use my friendly signs, their liking to display, what men our company would then refuse? Our betters then with us did seek to stay, for lo, it is a path to dignity, with Caesar's friend to be in amity. Then Pembroke and his wife, whose sister was unto the queen, their kinsfolk friended much, and par their brother did them both surpass, who for to pleasure us did never grutch, 
when these did call us cousin at each word the other peers would friendly speech afford soon after the king's return from france the queen's uncle par of horton resigned his office of lord chamberlain and his place in the council and though greatly urged by henry and catherine to continue to assist them with his experience and advice he sighed for the quiet of private life preferring he said to the honours that beset him in his niece's court the pious peaceable hospitable way of the country where popularity affected him more than he sought it no man being more beloved by the commonality End of section 3